As you do so, let's join together as we do each and every Lord's Day. And as God's beloved people, let's take our copies of God's Word and we'll turn to our passage for this morning and for the week ahead. And that's Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. Let's turn together then to Acts 9, 1 through 19. So we've made it eight chapters so far into the book of Acts. And the majority of these chapters have been looking at first the, the birth of the early church, um, and then the divine nurturing growth of the church. And we've come up through the, the persecution and ravaging of the church, but it's not the end of it. It, it. As Luke has told us, this persecution, this ravaging, has, has led to Christians fleeing to say Jerusalem. And as they're going out, they're like the parable of the sower. They are spreading the gospel as they go out. And so this great sort of irony, if you want to think of it that way, as, as Satan is trying to kill the church in Jerusalem, he leads to the spread of the church. No longer as the church that's there in Jerusalem, but now it's, it's gone outward to places such as Samaria. And as we saw last week with Philip sharing the gospel to Ethiopian eunuch who takes it back to Ethiopia, and, and the church begins there as well. So for eight chapters, we've been looking how the Lord has been at work in the, in the birth, the growth, the nurturing, and the spreading of the church. As we come to our passage this morning, Luke will now bring fully into the story someone that we know, someone who's very familiar to us, and especially in the book of Acts, and that's is Saul, uh, who we know as Paul. And what we will see is, is uh, as Luke brings him to the story, Saul ends up being, outside of Jesus Christ, the most important figure in the early church. Think about, and we'll think about this here in a few more moments. Take Paul out of the equation, and what do we have? In the book of Acts. And in the book of Revelation. John's epistles and Peter's epistles, but a majority of the New Testament is gone. If you take Paul out of the equation... So this morning, we see Luke bringing him more fully into the story and narrative. And so with that in mind, let's pray together now as we come before the reading of God's word. Lord, may Jesus Christ be praised, not just in our our singing, but Lord, in the reading, preaching, and hearing of your word. May this be about Jesus Christ, as Jesus points us to the Father and ministers to us through the Holy Spirit. May Jesus Christ be praised and all that is said and heard this morning. Bless us in this manner, we pray now. In Jesus' name, amen. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. We will stand together now for the reading of God's word. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He said, Who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. 
Now there was a disciple of Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to a street called Straight. And the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen a vision, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. Laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me, so you might regain your spirit, or regain your sight, and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. He rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. The grass withers and the flowers fade. The word of our God stands forever. Amen. You may be seated. If you look at Nielsen ratings and other sort of ways they keep track of things, it's obvious we as a people love a good scandal. If there's a scandal out there, it, it gets our attention. And, 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 and gods and gods of people will, will flock to, to, to look into the scandal. What's going on? They want to know more. They're, they're looking over the headlines. We love a good scandal. And especially if it's somebody famous. It's one of those famous people. And they're caught red-handed doing something scandalous. We love it. And when they go out in their media tour to, to, to be apologetic, those interviews get, get some of the highest ratings out of, out of any of the shows on during that time or even during that week. Matter of fact, we as a people have come to love a scandal so much as become newsworthy. Let someone famous have an affair. Or let them get arrested. Let them do something dumb. And you turn on the evening news, and you'll hear about world politics and 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 uh, natural disasters and and health events. And then, along those headlines, will come about this scandalous affair. It's all over the internet and social media. Matter of fact, we've come to love it so much. Uh, there's a term for it called breaking the internet. That a good, salacious scandal will figuratively break the internet because as word of it gets out, millions and millions of people will go online. They'll, they'll look at, they'll read about it, they'll, they'll look at the pictures, and they're taking pleasure in someone else's misery. That's in part what makes a scandal, isn't it? It's not scandalous for somebody to help a little old lady across the street. It's not scandalous for a young man to hold the door open for somebody at the grocery store. Scandal involves misery. Why are we like that? Why do people find such joy in someone else's misery? And the more famous they are and the more miserable they are, the more we seem to enjoy it. Why are we like that? Well, the argument can be made that part and parcel being famous. If you want to be famous and live your, your life in, in, in the limelight in public, this comes along with it. And I think there's some truth to that. 
If you want to be famous, you want to live in front of a, a gazillion cameras, and you want to do something scandalous, and hey, this is what happens. But I think, maybe the reason why we love a good scandal is because it reminds us that these people are really just like you and me. And we can put them on a pedestal for, for whatever reason we want to put them on a pedestal for, for their abilities, for the looks. We can, we can put them on a pedestal. But a scandal reminds us, in the day, they're just human. And they do dumb things like we do. And they say dumb things like we say. They, they act in inappropriate ways that we can be guilty of acting. The difference is, they do it in the limelight. They do it with millions of people being interested in their misery. Whereas our, our foibles are only in the presence of hopefully a select few. So maybe our fascination with scandals is, is that desire to connect on a human level. And to know that those even we put up on a pedestal are, are, are just as human as you and me. They, they put on their pants one leg at a time as you and I do. But we love a good scandal. And this morning we look at our passage and Luke tells us about a scandal in the early church. And what he's describing here is scandalous. But it's a scandal that reminds us that there's no such thing as super-Christians. Even though we're not Catholic, uh, we have a tendency to make saints out of people. St. Paul, St. Luke, St. Matthew, St. John. And the idea is, there's somebody different than us. They're, they're better than us. What we're reminded here in the conversion of Saul, every person ever born is born in the same spiritual condition. Conceived in sin. Born dead in their sins and trespasses. And everybody needs the grace of Jesus Christ. That's why one pastor describes this as a scandalous grace. That God would be so scandalous to show grace to people such as us. And I think we see that especially here in the conversion of Saul. I don't think it's hyperbole to say that Saul's conversion is, is, one, is among one of the greatest events in the history of the church, and probably even in the history of the world. Because as, as we've already said, without the conversion of Saul, there would be no New Testament as we know it. Without this conversion, there would be no New Testament church plants as we know them. Without this conversion, there would be none of the doctrinal emphasis that, that are considered central to the theology of the New Testament of union with Christ, justification by faith, the significance of Christ's death and resurrection. Without this conversion, we wouldn't have the greatest theologian and missionary in the New Testament. And we wouldn't have some of the great theologians of the church who, who expound on all these doctrines that we find in the New Testament. I think it's safe to say that the most important event in human history, apart from the incarnation of Jesus, that is the most important event in human history. But second to that is the conversion of Saul. But if we were to go and, and find Saul's high school, his senior year uh, yearbook, his, super, his senior superlative could very well have been least likely to be a Christian. Because think of what we know of him so far. Luke introduces us to Saul at the stoning of Stephen. And do you remember what Saul was doing there? He was standing there and all the people were coming and laying their garments at his feet. He was keeping guard over their garments so they could go and kill this man for simply being a Christian. 
And then Luke makes sure to share with us the detail that Saul gave his approval to the actions of the mob. So not only was he there, not only was he standing guard over their garments, he was nodding along in agreement to this man being killed for simply being a Christian. And then Luke tells us that, that we find Saul going throughout Jerusalem. He's like the Gestapo for the Nazis. He's going from house to house, kicking down doors, looking for Christians. And when he finds them, he, he tears them out of their house. He tears, apart, uh, he tears apart families, ripping the parents away from their children. And then ripping the parents apart and sending them off to, to prison, knowing there's a good chance they will die. And now here he, he tells us more about Saul. And as we, as we said in the previous eight chapters, Luke has been talking about the growth of the church, the success of the gospel, the gospel going forth, even going into enemy territory. And right before this is this wonderful story, the Lord being at work of calling Philip away from Samaria to go down to this lonely desert road to, to, to come across this Ethiopian eunuch to share the gospel with this man who is then baptized and goes back to Ethiopia and begins to share the gospel there. For the first eight chapters, it's been pretty much nothing but good news of the gospel. Even when there's persecution, the gospel is still spreading. For eight chapters, it's good news, good news, good news. I want you to look with me again at verse 1. I want you to notice how Luke makes this transition to the conversion of Saul. Two words, but Saul. But Saul. Grammatically, Luke is telling us something, isn't he? All these good things have been happening with the church and the gospel. Even the bad things, the stoning of Stephen, wrapping the church, God is working all things for good. The gospel is spreading. This is good news. But Saul, meaning that Saul doesn't feel the same way, does he? You and I read that, hear about it, and we go, that's wonderful. If we had, if we were, if we were around that time, and one of those people from the early church came to, to share that with us, we go, that's wonderful, that's, that's good news. What we find to be good and encouraging, Saul finds to be disturbing and bad, but Saul. And that almost tells us everything we need to know about him, doesn't it? But Luke goes further. He says, Saul so hates Jesus. Saul so hates the gospel. Saul so hates Christians that he says he's breathing threats and breathing murder against the disciples of the Lord. He's not just stating them. He's not just writing them down. He's not just emphasizing them. His hatred is as natural to him as breathing. To know Saul would mean you know somebody who hates Jesus with every particle of his being. That hates the gospel as much as he can and wants nothing more in life than to kill Christians. When he wakes up in the morning, his first thought in his mind is, how can I kill more Christians today? Let me get my bowl of cereal, my cup of coffee, and let's go out and let's kill us some Christians. So we're not talking about a disagreement. We're not talking about a dislike. We're not talking about that Saul would not rather be at a party with Christians. Luke has told everything we need to know. He hates them. He hates Jesus and all that pertains to him. He is breathing out threats and murder against them. 
And his hatred leads him to go to the high priest to get his permission to leave out from Jerusalem and to travel six days to Damascus to continue to hunt down Christians. Understand this means Saul now has a hunting license. It's not for deer. It's not for turkey. It's for Christians. He has a laminate card. This picture on it. His name. Signed by by a high priest. So this open season on Christians. This is your permission to go out and hunt them now. So there's an interesting contrast happening here. As we said... Luke has been telling us about how the Gospels are spreading out from Jerusalem. The religious leaders have have stoned Stephen, using that occasion then to to persecute the church in Jerusalem. But God uses that for the the church and for the Gospel to spread out from there, make it even to places such as Samaria. Now, the contrast is here's the enemy of Christ, an enemy of the church, and he's going out to spread this hateful persecution from Jerusalem. It's a reminder to us that wherever the gospel is, the enemy will soon show up. Wherever the gospel ministry is thriving, wherever the gospel is being proclaimed, it is just a matter of time before the enemy of God shows up. Just like we see here. The enemy is on the hunt. So Saul's not a man we look at and go, you know what? I think he has potential. I think Saul has potential to be a good Christian man. I think he has potential to to be a pastor. (laughs) That's not how they would think of him. This is a man that you and I would tell our children, if if you're walking down Main Street uh, of Winsboro and you see Saul coming towards you, you get your tail across to the other side of the street and you run to the police. If Saul were to come to your house and ring your doorbell, you would shut the blinds and hide behind the couch. If we were to see Saul pull up in his car in the parking lot, we would send the deacons to lock all the doors. Because Saul hates all things Jesus. And he is on the hunt to destroy the church. So he's on the road. He's on the road for a six-day journey to Damascus. He takes a group along with him. And it seems like they make it about five days into the journey. Maybe Damascus is kind of right there on the horizon. Saul is brewing his hatred of all things Jesus. Probably going through his mind, making plans of of the synagogues he's going to go to in Damascus and how he can start uh, kind of smoking out the Christians and what he can do to them. This is Saul. And then the miraculous happens. Look at verses 3 and 4. As he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul had a plan. Saul had a purpose. Saul had a passion. Then Jesus. He had a purpose. He had a plan. He had a passion. And then the resurrected Jesus comes to Saul on this road. Jesus has come after Saul. Jesus has found Saul. 
One pastor describes it as this is the moment that Saul was apprehended by Jesus. I think that's a good way to think of it. Saul wasn't looking for Jesus in a salvific sense. Saul wanted nothing to do with him. But Jesus came after him. And a light, unlike any other earthly light, shines down all around Saul. And from within that heavenly light, it's a, a light brighter than the sun, comes this very personal and, and direct address. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, the repetition of Saul's name in that, in that cultural context signifies an intimate personal address. This is no stranger in his heavenly light who's addressing Saul. This is his creator. This is one who has fearfully and wonderfully made Saul. This is one who's knit him together in his mother's tomb. Or his mother's womb. Let me get that right. Mother's womb. That'd be a whole other series right there. Mother's womb. Knit him together in his mother's womb. This is an address to Saul. One who knows him better than anyone else. And then that same person makes another intimate statement in the form of a Christian. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Think about this for me for a moment. Saul has a posse. He's on the way to Damascus to go and persecute Christians in the church. He has a plan. He has a purpose. He has a passion. And these very people he's on his way to persecute and ravage is these people who this heavenly voice is identifying with. Not Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Of course, we'd see that the voice in this heavenly light is the resurrected Jesus. And the resurrected Jesus so intimately and closely identifies with his people that as Saul's on his way to persecute Christians in the church, Jesus makes it clear to Saul that ultimately what he is doing is he's persecuting Jesus. Here's the interesting thing. When you go through Saul and then Paul, you call Paul, go through his epistles, you find that Paul explores this in his epistles. He explores and explains that Jesus so closely identifies with his people, with us in that manner. Because as Christians, he tells us we are now in Christ, not just with Christ, not just a part of Christ, but we are in Christ. Paul goes on to say that we are part of his body, which he is the head. We take on his name. We grow his likeness. He has wed himself to us. That as a Christian, we are now a part of Jesus. And that's what Saul begins to learn here. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now take a moment and let's think about Saul at this point. He thinks Jesus is dead. He rejoiced in the crucifixion of Jesus. And he was gleeful about the death of Jesus. He thought the whole resurrection thing was a hoax. That the disciples probably stole the body. And, 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 and that the followers of Jesus who believed in this resurrection, who preached the gospel of resurrection, held to such a, a heresy and blasphemy that they deserved death. Now, Saul is apprehended by the resurrected Jesus. That everything he thought was untrue now becomes true to him. And the truth 
begins to make its way through his, his mind and heart. Because we see that here in his, his response. He says, who are you, Lord? This seems to be a statement of faith. He's using the title Lord in a salvific manner. And we see that his actions immediately proceeding. At this moment, Saul meets the very one he has hated. And he is forever changed for it. In that moment, in that light, just hearing Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? In the blink of an eye, everything, everything changes for Saul. There's no more denying the truth of Jesus. There's no more denying the truth of the gospel. Saul is now confronted with the truth. And he will never be the same again. A man who so hates Jesus now falls in love with Jesus. And there's something interesting to note here real quick. Imagine if, if, if Saul just showed up to Damascus and said, hey guys, guess what? I was on my way to get all y'all. It's coming to kill you. Looking forward to it. But then Jesus made himself known to me on the road here and now I'm here as one of y'all. What, what, what do you think the Christians would think? Either he's a liar or he's out of his mind. But Luke makes sure to record for us the, the, the detail that his companions knew something was going on. They, they didn't, uh, they didn't uh, or it, Paul talks about uh, them, uh, later on, Paul talks about them being able to see the light, but they didn't understand the voice. So they didn't see Jesus, but they didn't hear the message to Saul either. But they could testify to others like, look, there, there is a brilliant light and there is a sound. And after that, Saul was never the same. So it points to this objective event that was not a matter of Saul's imagination. It's a matter of testimony, probably a matter of relief to Saul as well, that he could talk to his companions and be assured that he, he wasn't losing his mind or he'd eaten something bad for breakfast and was hallucinating. But Saul is now a changed man. He had been spiritually blind on his way to Damascus. Now his spiritual eyes are opened. But his physical eyes are blinded. And as blindness and fasting should not be seen as punishment, but as a result of the intensity of his encounter with Jesus, the one he hated has appeared to him, has saved him, has changed him. It's interesting. This is similar to another story we find in, this, in the narrative of the birth of Jesus. Remember Zechariah? His doubts. And God calls him to be a deaf mute. And it was designed to produce a time of reflection. And that's Saul here as well. Like Zechariah, he's been put in this, time, in, this, in this condition so he can have a time of reflection. But I think, too, this condition is a sign that he's been changed. Because it's going to lead to reflection. Spiritual eyes open, physical eyes blinded. He's now a changed man. Another sign he's been changed is, is, is that Ananias is told that he will know him because he knows Saul because he'll find Saul praying. Think about this. Who would Saul be praying to? He'd be praying to Jesus. Praying in Jesus' name. It's amazing to think. The great persecuted church just like that becomes a praying man. And as we read more about Paul and find that 
he's a pretty intense man. I don't think is I, I, I believe that at that moment when Saul began to pray, he prayed. And he was going to spend a majority of his time in prayer. You couldn't stop him from praying because he has been changed both in mind and heart. Saul is now a Christian. The great persecuted church is a changed man and now a lover and follower of Jesus. And folks, that's scandalous. That's scandalous. Why, why would God save a man like that? Put yourself in the shoes of an early church and you, and you heard this. One of your first thoughts would be, that can't be true. There are a whole ton of other people who should be a Christian before Saul. How would you respond to his news? How would you respond to the news that the great hater and persecutor and savager of the church is now claiming to be like you, a Christian, a lover, a follower of Jesus, and that he's, he's taken up to praying? We'd be just like Ananias. Lord, I've heard from many about this man. I've heard about how much evil he has done to your saints of Jerusalem. And he's here now. He has authority from chief priests to, to bind all who call on your name. Now, this is, this is Ananias' polite way of saying to God, um, what you talking about, Willis? How about dating a reference right there? All this 40 and under get that recipe. I'm sorry. But this is Ananias' polite way of saying, God, do you know what you're talking about? Are you... God, are you sure? God knows what he's talking about. God is sure. He has Ananias go to a street called Straight. It's the world's, it's one of the world's oldest continually occupied streets that still exists today. Go to Straight. Go to the house of Judas. There you'll find Saul. He'll be praying. And once you lay hands on him, he will regain his sight, receive the Holy Spirit, because he is the Lord's chosen instrument to take the gospel to both Jews and Gentiles. That's scandalous. Not just that Saul would become a Christian, but now Saul would be the Lord's chosen instrument to take the gospel to Jews and Gentiles and kings. Knowing this, I think this is where it makes this makes Ananias one of the great unspoken heroes of the church. He obeys. He goes. He finds Saul. And he calls him brother. I miss that tradition in the church. Call each other brother or sister. He says, brother Saul prays with him, lays his hands on him, and Saul's not able to see. And just like the Ethiopian eunuch, Saul takes on the sign and seal of the covenant baptism, publicly declares faith in Jesus, and to faithfully follow after him all the days of his life. This is scandalous. And it's scandalous grace. Because what does Saul do to deserve the grace of God? He wasn't a good guy. He, he wasn't somebody who's been around the church and we think he has potential. <coughs> he's hated Jesus. He's hated the gospel. He's hated the followers of Jesus Christ. He has dedicated himself to eradicating the church from existence. He is one of the least to deserve salvation. But God, in contrast to but Saul, but God chose to save Saul and to use him in great and fruitful and faithful ways. That is scandalous grace. 
And for all of us who have received and rested upon Jesus Christ alone for salvation as he's been offered the gospel, we too have experienced this same scandalous grace. Because the Bible is clear about each and every one of our spiritual condition. Every one of us has been conceived in sin. Every one of us has been born dead in our sins and trespasses. Every one of us have been enemies of God. Every one of us have been haters of grace. The only difference between us and Saul, or us with Saul, is that we weren't found on the road to try and kill Christians. But spiritually, we are the same with Saul. Because there may have been a time in our life, or there was a time in our life, and for some of us, it may still be that time in our life, that we've hated Jesus. We've hated his gospel. We've hated his people. We may be here this morning, but we have no interest in Jesus being our Lord and Savior. That's for holy rollers. We have no interest in giving up our, our, our particular sins because we love those sins. We want to hold on to the fact that we can be good enough to get into heaven. And like Saul, Jesus comes after us. Because like Saul, there is nothing we can do. The very one we have hated has so loved you and me that he came after us to save us. In college, I, I grew to love this hymn. I sought the Lord, and afterward I knew he moved my soul to seek him, seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior, true. No, I was found of thee. Thou didst reach forth thy hand and mine enfold. I walk and sank not on the storm-vexed sea. T'was not so much that I on thee took hold as thou, dear Lord, on me. See, our, our testimonies of faith is that of scandalous grace. None of you, none of us deserve Jesus. But he first loved you chose you, called you, and enabled you to love him. None of us have a right to Jesus, but he calls each of us to be his own beloved, and has bestowed on us all the blessings and the privileges of a child of God. None of us have claimed to Jesus, but he's claimed us as his own for eternity. The one we hated the most has loved us the most and saved us. And that's the testimony of our faith. This faith that will change us from the inside out like it did with Paul. This faith that has to hold on to grace because we don't deserve it, but it was given at the cost of the life of Jesus. This faith that can only come from Jesus. That's the testimony of our faith this morning and every day of our lives. And may that grace be shown not just in being scandalous, and being given to us, but scandalous how we, like Saul, will live it out, but now being changed from the inside out, and wanting nothing more than to live for Christ. Let's pray together.